0: Is a well-known day to many of us. It is December 7th. It is the 79th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which uh, ended up sparking the United States' entrance into World War II. Uh, This week is also the 83rd anniversary of another event from that era. It was called the Rape of Nanking. Um, The Japanese, before ever attacking Pearl Harbor, attacked China and a brutal war was take, took place there. And on December 13th, 1937, Japanese troops entered into Nanking, which was the capital of China at that time. And ultimately, it, you know, the numbers vary, but approximately 300,000 civilians were just brutally treated, raped, pillaged, murdered, 300,000 people murdered. This picture behind you is one from a game that was played by the soldiers. They had a beheading competition going on. There's other pictures I could have shown where there were hundreds of heads stacked up in front of one man. And it was just an evil, evil event, a horrific event that joins a myriad of other natural and unnatural disasters in the history of humanity. So my question for you parents and grandparents is how many of you this week intend to tell the story of Dan King as a bedtime story for your kids? Yeah, right. No, we don't, do we? Uh, we, don't, we don't tell our children at bedtime the story of Vesuvius erupting and wiping out the city of Pompeii. Um, how many of you have turned the tsunami in, Indian, in the Indian Ocean from 2004 that killed 230,000 people, how many of you have turned that into a bedtime story for your children? You don't, do you? So why do we do that with Noah? Yeah, Christopher Ashe, a, a British pastor, theologian, and writer, he poses this question, and he says, you know, essentially what we've done is we have Disney-fied the story of Noah. This is a story filled with horror, but it's also, and maybe this is why it's become somewhat of a bedtime story also for our children, it's, it is filled with horror, and yes, we probably downplayed the horror because it's also a story of hope, incredible hope. It's both at the same time, isn't it? And so this morning, we're going to cover this, this story. There's four chapters to read, so settle in. No, I'm not going to read all four. <laughs> I am going to read some selected verses from the four chapters to help carry the story along. But as we do that, I want to bring before you four gospel applications from this story that will show us that it is a very important passage of Scripture that is relevant for us today. Let me begin with this first application that we see in the opening verses, that humanity is radically and totally corrupted by sin. Now, I would love to jump straight to verse 5 in chapter 6, which really emphasizes this point but i know that if i skip the first four verses some of you are going to be irritated at me and you're going to bug me after the service so i do need to touch on the first four and they do kind of set the stage for verse five which really communicates this aspect of depravity verse one of chapter six says when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also, afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So, let me pause right there. Some of you are asking, what is that all about? What are the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim or the Nephilim? What does this mean? And there's references to this in the New Testament, in the book of Jude and Peter, for example. So there, there, I'm not gonna go into all the details because it'll bog the message down, but let me at least summarize the major interpretations through the centuries, over 2000 years of Christian history of what do these verses mean? So if you were to go to the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, men like this, they would tell you that the sons of God were the descendants of Seth. These were the human descendants in the line of Seth. The daughters of men were the women who had descended from Cain. And so the, the godly line of Seth began to intermarry with the ungodly line of Cain. And as a result, they, the people were departing from their faith wholesale, creating this issue that we'll see in verse 5. That was the reformers. Now, a more old, older, an older uh, interpretation, an ancient one going all the way back to the apostolic fathers, says that the sons of God were demonic fallen angels that in some way were able to cohabitate with women and have children with them, sparking a line of, of human whatever beings that were incredibly violent, evil. And all of this was an attempt And to to basically pollute and contaminate the family tree of Seth from which, of course, Jesus was supposed to is and ultimately does come from. And so it was basically a tactic to to, uh, foil the promise in the garden of Genesis chapter three that there would be a woman, a seed of the woman who would come and redeem humanity. Now, in more recent decades... The, the word sons of God had been understood by some to say, hey, this is an ancient word that means kings, rulers, lords, the, the strong rulers of that time. And what they were doing is they were just taking women as they wanted, creating their own harems. They were men of violence and, and they were changing society because of this. So which one is right? I don't know. Uh, but I would suggest that probably a version of the, the last two, is actually what's going on up here because we do have to take into account what the New Testament says about these sons of God. In some way, they are associated with demonic creatures. And so to me, what I think was going on was that demonic beings were possessing, thoroughly possessing strong men and rulers, tribal leaders, uh, you know, city, state, kings, these types of individuals. And they were so saturating these individuals and that society that it was corrupting the entire um, line and and civilization at that time. And so this reference to them coming and taking all of the women, this is a version of what is known as the rite of the first night. You may be familiar with this. If you ever watched the movie Braveheart, you see it there. Uh, You'll find its origins and antiquity as much as the medieval times of William Wallace Um, And a king, and what it meant was a king or a ruler or a noble had the right to bed a bride on the first night of her marriage. Now it's unknown how much of this actually happened in like in medieval, like with William Wallace. But it's interesting to point out that in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is another ancient Mesopotamian flood story, you find King Gilgamesh making use of this rite of the first night, this very evil practice. And so I do think that in some way it means that these leaders, these, these powerful men in that society of that day were demonically possessed and they were doing horrendous things. And that sets the stage for the most important verse of these opening verses in chapter six, which is verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This verse and these verses really remind us of an important truth, an important doctrine of our faith known as the total depravity of humanity. that that, that man is totally depraved. Humanity is radically and totally corrupted by sin. In other words, as it says here, every thought, uh, intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What an indictment upon humanity. You know, I had a, a seminary professor who taught us that we are sinners because we sin. We are sinners because we sin. And he was wrong. He had his word order mixed up. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born sinners. We are, we are totally and radically corrupted by sin. There is not one aspect of our being that has not been tainted and polluted and radically affected by the presence of sin We inherit this corruption from our first parents, Adam and Eve. This is what is known as original sin. That's not just lyrics in a song, okay? And original sin also doesn't mean the first sin that was ever created. Original sin is referring to the effects of the first sin of our first parents upon us. And the effects of that original sin is that we are thoroughly, radically corrupted by its presence in our lives. Now, total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we possibly can be. Total depravity does not necessarily mean utter depravity, but it does mean that everything that is within us is tainted. Everything that we do, think, act is tainted and polluted by sin. Even the good deeds, the good works that we would point to as justification for us being considered good people, the Bible says, no, they're not good in the sight of God. They are tainted and polluted by sin. This is why there is no one who is good, God declares, not even one person. We're totally radically corrupted by sin. And so the reason that we actually do not become utterly depraved, and our society is not utterly depraved, is because of something known as the restraining grace of God. God restrains evil in our society. And when you find societies that have very little presence of of, Jesus Christ in that civilization, you will see evil even reaching higher limits and extremes. And the more God withdraws his hand of restraining grace, the more that nation or society will devolve into abject, utter depravity. And you see it in the world stage even today. So this pre-flood society is an example of a civilization where Very little of the restraining grace of God was actively in place. All the intentions of the thoughts of their hearts, of everyone, God says, was evil, not just some of the time, but continually. And so when you look at verses 11 to 13, it puts it in even more graphic terms. Oh, I skipped a quote. I'm sorry. Uh, John Calvin, and it is a good quote for me to give you about total depravity. What does it mean? Sin has possessed all the powers of the soul since Adam departed from the fountain of righteousness. Man is so totally overwhelmed as with a deluge that no part is free from sin. And therefore, whatever proceeds from him is accounted sin. Paul, the apostle, says it in a slightly shorter way. He says, the, but the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. And so as a result of this, we see when God's restraining grace is withdrawn, when our natural human depravity begins to reach its limits, a society like Genesis 6. And verse 11 says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, one of the reasons why we are emphasizing by faith as our ministry theme this year, is to make sure that we as a church are grounded in in core, foundational, biblical truths and doctrines of our Christian faith. It's very easy for false doctrine and false teachings to seep into God's church happens all the time. And if we're not vigilant, if we're not always proclaiming and rebuilding those foundations, then people are led into deception. And this is one of those truths because we, like the civilization before the flood, are radically and totally corrupted by sin from birth. We need something or someone from outside of ourselves to rescue us and to restore us to our creator. Humanity is radically, totally corrupted by sin. Second application from our passage God's judgment is the right response to sin, reflecting both His holiness and his love. Verse six says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven for I am sorry that I have made them. Recently, I received a a question uh, about this passage. It revolved around this passage. It is a question that I have received in different ways throughout the years from believers and non-believers alike um, through the years. So for example, believers come to this entire story of Noah and some will just bluntly say, you know, is, is this actually just a myth that's meant to teach us a, a spiritual truth? Or others will say, was this flood, was, isn't it more likely that this flood was just a local flood and not like a worldwide flood? After all, you know, God is love. How could he destroy everybody who was on the earth? I mean, that, that's a little extreme. That's not very loving. That is how it's posed from the, from the Christian. The non-Christian, it'll be a little more blunt. This is why I don't believe the Bible. How can you have a God like this? How can you worship a God who kills everybody? What kind of cruel, inhumane God is that? No, thank you. Pass. I like my God's nicer (laughs) than this, right? And these questions, by the way, this is the same sentiment that's behind so many, even in churches today who question whether or not, you know, the final judgment of God and whether there's a hell and will he reject those who reject Jesus Christ? It's the same sentiment. Well, let me just stay up front that we would never ask these questions if A, we understood the holiness of God, And B, if we didn't think that we were so smart that we could actually judge God's actions and words. And C, if we just didn't really want to be God and determine good and evil for ourselves. In other words, what's behind these questions is the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three, where they hurled accusations against God in order to, for, to justify themselves becoming their own God. That's what's going on in these kinds of questions. But we need to pause. We need to think about this for a minute. Um, according to God, according to testimony of scripture, God, the only one who by last time I checked, was omniscient, all seeing, could look into the hearts of man, could determine what was really going on and could see everyone all at the same time. This God, not us, because we can't do that even though we think we're smart enough to judge that God. This God says, I look across creation and here's what I see. The earth's population is completely sold out to sin and violence. This is what's going on. It's a violent, sinful, chaotic world. Essentially, this creation that he had designed had devolved back to the chaos of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And the beauty, and the order of God's creation was being completely overthrown and destroyed by the sinfulness and the violence of man. And the scriptures tell us God was so grieved. We need to understand that this judgment that comes here comes out of God's grief and sorrow over what is happening. He's so grieved, he has to intervene and judge society. I mean, think about it for a moment. What would it say about God if he had allowed that to go on and he did not judge the earth? What would that tell us about God? I mean, at best, what it's gonna say is that, oh yes, God is holy and loving, but he's a weakling. He can't actually do anything about humanity and humanity's sin. And what kind of God is that? I mean, a God who's not more powerful than we are, that's not God at all. Or at worst, what it's telling us is that God isn't holy and he's not loving. You see, a God who loves his creation will not sit passively by and allow it to be destroyed by sin and violence. A God who is holy will not allow humanity who's been created in his image to be thoroughly conquered and defeated and ruled by sin. So it may not be politically correct to believe And the idea that God judges humanity sometimes severely because of sin and violence, and he does so in a very pervasive way. That may not be politically correct, but I would suggest to you that it's indispensable to creation and to our understanding of God. Tim Keller has touched on this. He writes that the reason God is a judge is because of human violence. And if you get rid of the idea of judgment, if you get rid of the idea of a divine judge, you have absolutely no way to deal with human violence intellectually, emotionally, or culturally. In other words, if there is no God who is holy, and loves humanity enough to judge sin, then we have no way at all to explain and deal with the pervasive violence of this world. Intellectually, how can we object to any of the violence of this world if there is no God like this or there is no God at all? Because let's remember with um, the premise of secular evolution, is that the strong devour the weak. It's survival of the fittest. I mean, when's the last time you got upset that the bigger, stronger fish ate the smaller, weaker bait fish? How many of you, that kept you up at night? It didn't, did it? Well, sorry, young people, some of you have very sensitive hearts, but one day when you eat enough of them, that won't worry anymore. Okay, shouldn't have said that. But anyway, (laughs) reset. But we don't think anything about that, right? It's just natural. That's nature. The strong consume the weak. And so if there's no God like the Bible, what intellectual justification do we have to object against the stronger human being devouring the weaker human being? We don't have one. In fact, Friedrich Nietzsche goes so far as to say any objections that we raise to the stronger devouring the weak is coming from the weak, and it's actually a tactic to manipulate the strong to protect themselves from being devoured. (laughs) Think about that. That's, That's a mind bender. But there's no intellectual justification for it at all. Or emotionally, culturally, think about that for a moment. Emotionally, we will break down if we don't have some kind of assurance that those who do us wrong, who are violent, abuse us, defraud us, that they are gonna one day be called into an account by a righteous God. Or culturally, think about what our culture would be like if we wholesale reject the idea that there is a God who judges and makes things right, what we all do is we pick up the gun and it becomes one big game of Hatfield and McCoys. Tit for tat. Church, we must not cherry pick the scriptures. The same scriptures that tell us God is our loving creator also teach us that God is holy. He hates sin. He will judge Sin. His judgment is always right. Sometimes it's horrific. But as this story also tells us, his grace and his love are always present and pervasive throughout that judgment. So let's come to a third application this morning. Because he is gracious, God provides salvation for sinners who trust him. Verse eight says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. God explains to Noah how he is going to destroy the earth and the population because of their sin, but he's also going to protect it. And in verse 14, we read, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. For the first time in the Bible, the word righteous is used in this passage. It's the same word that'll be in chapter 15 when it describes Abraham who believes God and it's counted to him as righteous. And the same thing is happening here with Noah. Noah believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. Why does he believe God? Is he not a sinner? Is he not born under original sin like everyone else? No, that's not the case. Ephesians 2 tells us that we're all born in this type of situation. The difference here, as these verses tell us, is that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. in other words, God sovereignly chose to pour out his grace on Noah. And as a result, this change totally changed the trajectory of his life, just like the trajectory of our lives had been changed when God poured his grace out upon us. And because of this, Noah, believes God, and he lives by faith. And so when God told Noah about the flood, church, this was grace. It's all through the story. When, when God gives Noah the blueprints for the ark so that he could be rescued, this was grace. In chapter seven, when he seals him into the ark and he protects his family and the animals of creation, this is grace in the midst of judgment. In chapter eight, when God causes the waters to recede and then he opens up the door so that Noah and his family can come out and take up life, this is grace. When when God then tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, when essentially what he's doing is he's recreating the earth, reenacting Genesis 2, but this time with Noah and Mrs. Noah, This is grace. Grace is all through this story. I mean, think about it. For 100 years, God gave humanity 100 years to repent and believe the message that Noah was preaching to them. This is God's grace. I mean, like no one else, God gave humanity a righteous preacher, the New Testament calls him, that he preached and he proclaimed and he warned the people and he gave this preacher the best illustration and object lesson in the history of humanity to back up his message. (laughs) This big ark that he's building. What an object lesson. And he gives it to these people so that they can repent. Yet they disregarded the messenger. They disregarded the grace of God. Grace is everywhere. I mean, can you imagine for a hundred years you hear God's man proclaiming, folks, listen, I'm not crazy. I'm not building all this because I'm a nut job. God is going to judge the world. Everyone is gonna be destroyed. If you need to repent, you need to believe what I'm saying. You need to join me and my family in this ark so you can be rescued. And what was their response? They sneer and they jeer and they mock and they disbelieve. Imagine that scene. Because humanity hasn't changed. And you know how we respond to crackpots, right? Or people that we think are a little bit off. I mean, can you imagine all the Noah jokes that were circulating in social media during that day? Right? It's everywhere. There were tons of memes about this guy. Guarantee it. But imagine also the horror of all those people who scoffed and mocked Noah when the rains fell and the flood waters rose, but the door had been sealed up and there was no more entrance for them, no way to escape from God's judgment. This is not a Disney bedtime story, but it is a story of grace in the midst of horror and judgment. And it was a story that the Israelites in the wilderness needed. I mean, think about why Moses would tell this story to that generation of young men and women. And you can see why, because they had witnessed their parents and their grandparents being destroyed by God in his righteous judgment for their unbelief and their rebellion against him and they never entered into the promised land. And they watched their parents and grandparents die because of God's judgment of their unbelief, just like the people in Noah's day. But this story tells them something, that God is a gracious God and he seals in his chosen people and he carries them through his judgments to a better day, a day for them, which would be the promised land. As they began to conquer it, they needed that story of hope as they were sitting in the wilderness, pondering the judgment of God that had fallen upon them and their families. Is this how it was going to end? No. God preserves his chosen people and he carries them even through times of judgment to fulfill his kingdom promises and his kingdom ends. And they found that to be true. And church, as much as they needed it, we need it. One final application this morning. This story, it's not meant to be a bedtime story that entertains our children. It's meant to be a story of of warning and a story of hope at the same time. The warning, there is future judgment coming that demands our personal preparation. It also demands our proclamation of the gospel. The story of Noah ends in chapter nine. And God makes a covenant with Noah and through Noah with all of humanity. It's an unconditional covenant. In other words, it it all depends upon God. God is making it. He has all the obligations here. And chapter nine, verse 11, he says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then we know this part of the story because we tell this to our children, right? And then God, what did he do? He made a what? Rainbow. I saw a beautiful double rainbow the other day. And of course, every time I see the, the rainbow, you know what I think of, right? Story of Noah. Because whenever God makes a covenant, he makes... A sign establishes a sign with that coming. And so this rainbow is given to us. It's a promise from God that He will never judge the earth again and destroy it with a cosmic flood. But church, pay attention. The rainbow is not, it is not God's promise that He will never judge the earth again. That's not the meaning of the rainbow. In fact, if we go to the New Testament and we look at it carefully, we will repeatedly see where Noah and the flood is used by Jesus and the apostles to warn us of the certainty of God's future judgment. They use it as an example of God's grace that is actually available to us for salvation now before the judgment to come. And this is used throughout the New Testament. Noah. This righteous man of God believes and he trusts in God. He proclaims the grace and the forgiving mercy that is available to unbelievers. He then enters into the ark and he experiences God's faithful salvation and rescue from the judgment of sin. And this righteous man of faith, Noah, points us to one who is greater than he. In this season of Advent, it's kind of weird to have the story of Noah at Advent, isn't it, Paxson? But, you know, in, in Advent, we celebrate the coming of Jesus into our world, God in the flesh, and this is the one who perfectly fulfills everything that Noah points us to and introduces us to. Like Noah... Jesus is tempted to sin, but unlike Noah, he never does. Like Noah, Jesus proclaims the need for repentance and is on the receiving end of jeers and sneers and disbelief. Like Noah, he works with wood. (laughs) And he's associated with a wooden symbol, not an ark like Noah, but a cross. But both of these symbols... Are symbols at the same time of God's judgment and God's salvation. He's the perfect one that Noah points to. Like Noah, Jesus puts a gracious warning before us, and he uses in his sermon as an illustration, the story of Noah. This is what he says in Matthew 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware... Until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus says in his first advent, in his first coming, as we read about this morning and confessed together on the screen, he's coming again, a second advent. But this time he does not come as a meek sacrificial lamb. He comes as the almighty God of the universe, ready to judge the quick and the dead, the spiritual believer and unbeliever. This day is coming, he says. The son of man will come again and it will be like the days of Noah. In other words, life will just be happening. There's nothing strange about eating and drinking. Most of us are gonna do some of that after church this morning. Some of you are already thinking about it, right? There's nothing strange about getting married or getting engaged, right? Not at all. Marrying, I mean, this is life. In other words, the point is life is just gonna be going on. We're gonna be looking at the news. We're gonna be going about our days and then bam, the Lord Jesus Christ returns and Katie bar the door. You thought the flood was bad? Wait till this judgment. And so the point of the judgment story in Noah and the hope that we find in the story of Noah is to prepare us for the one that is even worse to come because there it's eternal. And I know people will scoff. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Because you think you're smarter than God. The arrogance of humanity to say that God cannot do this. There's coming a day when God will judge the earth again, church. It won't be with water, like Noah's flood. It'll be much worse. Peter he he gives a message to the scoffers of his day. Who said, "No, this can never." God is a God of love. All the things that we hear today, and Peter says, "This, you deliberately forget." That God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Church, the scriptures tell us that it is appointed unto a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. This judgment will be fully realized at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Noah's story is about how God judges sin, but in the midst of that judgment of sin, there is grace and salvation that comes by God's grace through faith. And this same salvation by God's grace through faith is what we've been entrusted with, that the world needs to hear and believe to prepare for that day of future judgment, which is still to come. So our response this morning is simple. For those of you who... Maybe you're holding back. Maybe you're, yeah, I don't know about this. Just, whatever that response of unbelief may be, ignoring the preaching of God's forgiveness, you're doing this and you need to understand your time is running out. Your time is running out. The door will soon be sealed up. And when that has happened, there is no entering the ark of God's salvation. The Bible says that today is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. What is it that is stopping you from confessing that you are a sinner in need of a savior? What is it that's stopping you from committing your life to Jesus Christ and asking him to forgive you of your sins and to be your Lord and master? What is holding you back? Do you even know what that is? Understand the grace and the mercy of God, there is a schedule to this and we do not know the day or the hour, we just know it's coming. And believers, those of us who have received this message and believe it, know that God calls on us to love and obey him as Noah did in those days. And one of the primary ways we do this is we proclaim both the bad news and the good news of the gospel to our friends and our neighbors and our community. The bad news, right? Man, we are all radically corrupted by sin without hope except God's mercy, but there's good news. Jesus Christ came, He took on flesh, born of a virgin, and he lived the life that we're to live. He paid the penalty of our sin, and he provides salvation for all who will call upon his name. May God help us to faithfully proclaim this message of gospel restoration to our broken world. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to look at this story, maybe a story that for many of us has been relegated to bedtime just a a little story to tell our kids. But Father, there's so much more here. Few, Few men in the Bible are mentioned more than Noah as we move forward in the pages of Scripture. He was an important man. This story is an important marker for us. May we grasp the meaning, give us the grace we need to discern what you're telling us here. And Lord, for the one who maybe hears this message today, who is yet to commit their life to you, Lord Jesus, would you convict them? Would you help them to realize that the day is a day of salvation, that you will return one day like a thief in the night when no one is expecting it. And at that point, it'll be too late. Help us to see salvation while it may be obtained. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.